Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Patricia Flanagan to Legally Empowered, Cotra Fox's trademarked practice group. Patricia assists emerging companies in protecting their U.S. and intellectual property rights. She serves as a strategic ally to her clients, helping them to develop business methods that cultivate and protect intellectual property assets through trademark and copyright registrations, trade secrets, licensing, publicity, digital media, and internet-related content. Through her robust trademark practice, she regularly counsels clients on worldwide brand management strategies, clearance and registration of trademarks and service marks, a range of policing and enforcement issues, including when necessary, handling trademark infringement and unfair competition cases, taking them to trial if necessary, and so much more. Welcome, Patricia. I'm so excited to have you join me today. Lovely to be here. Let's jump right in. So my trademark and patent classes way, way back in law school were like some of my favorite classes. I just found them so interesting. But I think I need a little bit of a refresher because it's been just a hot minute. So can you tell me the difference between trademarks, copyrights, and patents? So trademarks, copyrights, and patents are categories that fall under the general umbrella intellectual property. A trademark um, is going to focus on a name or a symbol that identifies the goods or services. It's going to distinguish your goods from the goods and services of others. It indicates you as the source of the goods. The general purpose of trademark law is a bit different than the other categories in intellectual property. Really going to focus on protecting consumers from confusion in the marketplace. The copyright okay, aspect so, and category. So trademark, so Nike swoosh, just do it. Are those trademarks? Absolutely, yes. Okay, cool. So copyright. Copyright. So copyright is going to really protect content. So those are the artistic, literary, and intellectually created works, such as novels, music, software code, even, or paintings. They have mm. to be original to be protected by copyright, and they have to exist in a tangible medium. Um, very low threshold for protectability with respect to copyright. Um, so movies, books, artwork fall into this category. Hmm. NFTs, third, copyrightable? Um, still up for debate. Those are uh, cutting <laughs> edge. Uh, okay, we'll get into that later. Great. Um, the third category of patents, um, that covers technical inventions, chemical compositions, drugs, mechanical processes. They have to be new, unique, um, and usable to fit into this category. Um, and it's a bit different than the other categories based upon the purpose that underlies it. And, when it comes to patents, you're basically as an inventor, you're trading disclosure of your invention for a temporary monopoly, which is quite a different purpose than protecting consumers like the trademark or with mm -hmm. respect to the copyright. You're really trying to, to generate more creators, you know, giving reasons for people to create new content because they're going to be able to be the authors of that content and generate income from it. Super helpful. So let's back up to starting a new business. And what are the first steps an entrepreneur should be taking when they just have their concept for their business? Sure. So there's going to be a lot of things that I'm sure that, you know, the, the starters of a, of a new company are going to be thinking about. Um, from an IP perspective, there's a number of important things that should be done at the outset. First, how are people going to find you? How are they going to identify you? How are you going to identify your products and services and so that people can distinguish them from others? So you're going to come up with that name or names for your product. A couple things to think about when you're, you know, when coming up with that name, um, originality. 
very difficult these days. You come up, you think you have a very original idea, and mm -hmm. you, you know, do a Google search, and um, you see somebody else already had that particular idea of that name connected with maybe you know similar goods and services. So is it original? Um, and the next thing, maybe consider the strength of the trademark. This can be a little bit tricky if you haven't heard of this before, but the strength of a name in terms of the trademark sense is really determined by how closely the word or the phrase is connected with that product or service. The more connected with the product, the less strength it will have. Mm. So because, and this is really because the competitors have to be able to identify what their good or their service is and describe their product or service. So you can't prevent them from using something that is descriptive. Um, so the more connected and more descriptive it is, the less protectable it's going to be. So Sahara's computer services, not particularly strong, except for the fact that I have a unique name. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. So it's that, that the, the phrase there and, and names are actually considered descriptive also. So if you, if you use your name in your business, despite it being very unique, um, it is going to be considered descriptive and therefore uh, not as strong of a mark as it might otherwise mm. be. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, the stronger name is going to be one that has nothing to do with the products or services. You know, marketing folks might not like that as much, right, because you don't necessarily know what the product is when you're buying it. An example being Apple in connection with computers, right? Until mm. Apple came along, there was, there was no connection between the, the word Apple and a computer. Right, right. So to follow up on the originality portion of it, if I go, let's say, on Instagram and I'm looking for a new business name and I'm searching, I have seen a million Instagram accounts that there's nothing happening with them, but somebody has like claimed the name. Even when I was looking at names for this podcast, there were a lot of names that we were considering that had been sort of taken on Instagram, but yet nobody appears to be doing anything with them. And I know Instagram isn't sort of the best way of doing that, but how do you really know if it's original, if a name is, is taken or being used for something? Well, I've definitely seen that happen and gone on and seen a number of similar names. Um, and it, it's a misnomer to say that as a trademark owner, right, that you own the word. So you don't actually own the word and can stop anyone from using it anywhere. Um, what you own is that particular name in connection with the goods and services that you're using it with. So likely, if you were to dig into these different um, uses, they wouldn't all be in connection with the same or similar or even complementary goods and services. Um, and that's really mm -hmm. where the focus is. So when you're, when you're looking at the marketplace, you have to see how, how the mark is being used in connection with what goods and services. Where is it being used? Um, really understand what that commercial activity looks like, because that's how the trademark rights themselves accrue. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily matter that uh, the podcast is called Legally Empowered and there might be a legally empowered legal services consulting business or something like that. I don't know if that's true, but just as an example. Right. So the, the question when it comes to trademark law is always going to be whether a customer would be likely to be confused by the two uses. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what about founders who have already come up with a name and then they realize that somebody else has a trademark? What, are the, what do they do then? So the first thing I would say is if you come across the name that you think is the same or very similar um, to the one that you like, right? You've selected this name, you're going to put it on your, your products or put it in your advertising. Um, 
is it really going to be a conflicting or blocking mark or use? Um, is it a registration? Um, if it's a registration that you've come across where someone has actually registered that brand federally, what goods and services is it registered in connection with? I think the first step is really to understand what you're looking at. So is it actually being used or is it a dormant website that you've come across that, that shows this particular use? Um, if it's a registration, digging in to see whether or not, you know, they're actually still using that trademark. And maybe it's just a registration that hasn't gone abandoned yet. If you actually have used the trademark in commerce for a while, you also want to look to see whether you might have priority, meaning that you started using your name uh, before the one that you just came across. And all of these things mm. will kind of weigh in to, to the next step. If you didn't come first, um, if it is in connection with similar goods and services, and it's either identical or very similar to the overall uh, commercial impression of the name that they're using, then I would say, you know, we're going to have to start the conversation or you're going to have to start the conversation of how can we change or modify this particular name uh, so that there's right. not a potential for a likelihood of confusion in the marketplace. The nature of that change really depends. So if it's very unique and it's, you know, there, there's not a lot of use of that particular name in the marketplace, that'll weigh in to the determination of how much change has to happen. And maybe we have to have a, a, an entire shift to a new mark um, that's, you know, mm. very different from the one that, that was chosen to begin with. Um, if there's a lot of uses in the marketplace of maybe different components of the trademarks and, the, and they're not exactly the same, then maybe it's just a small change that's needed uh, because consumers would be trained in the marketplace to identify and distinguish between the trademarks, even though there's just little differences between them. Hmm. So do you find that you as an IP attorney uncover these issues before your clients do, or is it generally that a competitor will come after a client and say, hey, I'm using this name or mark and you can't use it? Well, as a general matter, you know, we discuss and I talk with my clients um, at length about the marketplace before they adopt a new name. So if they've been talking to me for a while, then it's likely that we, we've done some searching and, and clearing of the, of the names that they've liked. Um, and I've given them the green light to go ahead with those in terms of both the, the registrations and also common law uses that might be in the marketplace. So we can run searches and to do that and to get names and, you know, before, before they move forward and invest a lot of money in the new name, um, we tend to do that. But, you know, if, if, if for people that I might not be working with in advance, you know, I do have people come to me all the time. I receive this letter. What do I do? Um, and, you know, at that place, there's, there's a few options at that, at that time. Once we receive the letter, I'm going through sort of the same general strategy that we talked about a moment ago. Is this a blocking use? Do we think that there's a likelihood of confusion? Um, and then what should we do here? It really depends upon mm -hmm. the analysis of the marketplace. Yeah, I get it. I mean, somebody might not want to change their name, and they might be willing to go ahead and, and take the risk, right? Right, and there might be good arguments for the fact that there is no likelihood of confusion. So all things that have to be looked at. Um, and in a lot of cases, there can be, you know, some back and forth or some narrowing if registrations are involved. Maybe it's just an amendment to the goods identification, um, which is you know, when you're registering a trademark, it's specific to goods and services. So maybe it's just some changing to the wording that makes one party more comfortable, um, that there would be no confusion. Maybe the parties can coexist in the marketplace. 
or maybe they enter into an agreement to coexist in different marketplaces or in different streams of commerce where there will be no likelihood of confusion. So there's a number of different ways that it can go after receiving the demand letter. So what point in the process do you recommend the actual registration? As soon as possible. As soon as you identify that name and you, you do the searching, whether it's going to be basic searching at the trademark office, um, some Google searching, or whether you're going to engage counsel to do a full clearance search, as soon as you know that that's the term that you think you're going to proceed with, I would file an application. So if it comes after incorporation, that's great, or formation of your company. You can include the company name as the owner, which, is, which would be proper. And if not, as long as you have use-based application, it can be assigned over to the entity after the fact. But as soon as possible, you get those priority, of, priority rights nationwide um, and the additional protections provided by that federal registration. Okay, let's talk about non-disclosure agreements. So when I talk to entrepreneurs, one of the first things they're always looking for are non-disclosure agreements. So when do you need them and who do you need them for? So non-disclosure agreements are really going to come into play anytime that there's valuable information. So if you, if you feel like some information in the startup is going to be valuable, that, the, that there's some benefit that you're gaining over your competitors, right? And non-disclosure agreements are going to come into play. And that type of information can include anything from financial information, technical um, supply chain, who your suppliers are, their information and contact information, who your vendors are, your customer list. So every time you're dealing with these sorts of things, um, a non-disclosure agreement is a great place to start. These, and, I, and I think the second part of your question was, who do you need them for? So the, yeah. these would apply to your employees, independent contractors, vendors, anyone kind of who will have access to this sort of information when you're getting off the ground. It's really easy to pass over something like this and getting it in place. A lot of people are thinking about it as top of mind. But for some, you know, missing this is, is crucial, particularly in terms of, you know, if you later want to say this is a trade secret of the company and if you, do, you are ultimately successful, um, it's important to have all those agreements in place from the beginning. Right. And that's an important point because I sometimes see a non-disclosure agreement that maybe was put together for a financing pitch or for a potential partnership that doesn't have the same information that you might need for employees or independent contractors, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be important that that includes and lists out and will cover the information that you think is valuable to the, to the startup. Yeah, and I also sometimes see confusion over the terms non-disclosure, NDA, versus confidentiality agreement, and then inventions and assignment agreements. So sometimes they're called non-disclosure inventions and assignments agreements or proprietary information assignment agreement, uh, all these different terms. But they don't all mean the same things, right? That's true. I, I think in today's day and age, I think, you know, non-disclosure agreement and confidentiality agreement, I think, are used generally interchangeable. And I think that, you know, that's what I've seen, at least in my practice. Um, I know that some people use confidentiality agreement to indicate a higher level, that there's some more terms that are being agreed to, maybe different levels of the maintenance of the uh, information. Um, and sometimes I think people refer to confidentiality agreement to, include, to infer that it's mutual, 
um, versus one way. So if you're signing a non-disclosure mm -hmm. agreement, maybe it's just one person that's agreeing not to disclose um, versus if it's confidential, maybe there's a mutual agreement that you're, you know, both sides are providing information or everyone's, both sides are bringing some information to the table and that's, you know, valuable to, to them. So that's how I've seen it. I, when you use the terms invention and assignment, um, mm -hmm. that does go quite a bit further. Um, so that's going to also include confidential terms relating to information, but also that means that there's going to be some designation of ownership um, that's being transferred in that document, whether it's, you know, inventions that are being worked on, if there's some technical or software that's involved in the work they're doing, you know, it's then going to be assigned um, likely by the, the name of the, the title of the document to the company, or perhaps that there's an assignment of the content that's being created for the company. Right. So when you have employees in early stages of startups or contractors, they may not have a completely defined scope of what they're doing or creating for the company. So I think the inventions and assignments language really becomes paramount, even potentially more so than the confidentiality because there's some benchmarks for, for confidentiality of trade secrets anyway without an agreement, right? But, uh, but you need that assignment language because that determines who will own the, the work that these people are creating. Absolutely. It's, it's very important to make sure that there's a written agreement that talks about ownership um, and that it's clear who's going to be owning the whatever it is that's being created, whether it's content or whether that there's some type of technical work being done. And did I get that right, that, that there is trade secret protection even if somebody, let's say, forgot to have somebody sign an NDA or they really need to do that as a first step before talking to anybody in order to ensure trade secrets are adequately protected? Well, there's always going to be a little bit of gray area. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that, that you can't protect a trade secret if you didn't have the agreement in place from the beginning. So it's going to be, I would say that it, we'd have to take a look at that particular scenario to see whether or not um, trade secrets are out the door, literally and figuratively. But always best case to have the written document ahead of time. Okay, that makes absolute sense, best practice. Uh, what about contractors? people who might come in for a week at a time, might be writing code. How, how do we make sure that we protect that information? Again, it's going to be by written agreement. Very important with independent contractors to have a, a written document talking about ownership of intellectual property for the work that they are, you know, have their hands in. Um, I think, you know, there, there's a general thought that just because they're doing work for the company that the company is going to own what it is that they're working on or what it is that they're creating, but that's generally not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. There's no work for hire for independent contractors unless they actually sign a written agreement to that effect. So if you don't have that contract in place, the independent contractor is going to be owning you know, the content, the content that they've created for you. Um, or the, the inventions that they've created. So very important and different than an employee. So there is a work for hire when it comes to employees. And that's, you know, where it's derived from. Um, so as long as it's within the scope of work, then it'll be owned by the company. So do you just put work for hire language in your agreement or email with your independent contractor if that's how you're handling it? Is that enough? 
No, it's not going to be enough. So when you include that work for higher language, you also want to include an assignment provision. Because there's very, at least within copyright, there's very specific rules about when a work for hire will transfer that authorship immediately mm. to the company or not. So you want to say, you know, this is a work for hire, uh, but if it's not, then I hereby <laughs> assign any and all rights <laughs> to the company. So just, you know, belt and suspenders, uh, make sure that at the end of the day, if it is um, found not to be a work for hire, that you do have at least those rights as of the time of the assignment to the company. Right. And the difference between the assignment and the copyright, if I recall correctly, is the length of time that the company would own it, right? Is, uh, am I remembering that correctly? That's true. So the, the doctrine affects who's the original author. So it, under the work for hire, if an employee creates um, you know, uh, some artwork or design for the website. Mm -hmm. um, if they're an employee within the scope of their employment, that author is going to be the company and not them individually. If there's an assignment, they are the author. They are the original owner. Um, and that assignment would just transfer that ownership over to the company. For a period of time or forever. Right. Mm -hmm. For a period of time. There, there are some technical rules um, that provide for, okay. for termination. Okay, great. Now, I just want to mention for our California listeners that independent contractor agreements that have work for hire language are a little bit tricky because under California's unemployment insurance code, it says that anyone who has work for hire language in their employment contractor agreement is going to be considered an employee for purposes of collecting unemployment insurance, which of course is one of the reasons that people would uh, want to be classified as an independent contractor to avoid paying payroll taxes and unemployment. But when you put that work for hire language into an independent contractor agreement, it sort of negates that. So it's a little bit of a tricky issue. And we generally just use that assignment language rather than the work for hire language for our California contractors. So, Interesting. That okay. seems like a, the right move. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it litigated from an IP perspective yet in terms of, you know, protecting information, but it is sort of this little nuance, uh, as there are many in California, and uh, wanted to make sure that we didn't overlook that since I am LA-based. <laughs> so tell me what other pieces of advice you have for our entrepreneurs that are listening. Well, I think I said it earlier, but file, you know, for trademark protection as soon as possible. As soon as you make the decision that you know you're going to be doing, um, get that on file. Um, I'd also say maintain your records, particularly if you file an intent to use application, uh, meaning that you have not yet used the mark in commerce. So maintain those records showing that you were, you know, ramping up to launch um, in case that becomes an issue down the line. Uh, maintain records of your first use when you first launch your new line or whether it's goods or services, you know, maintain some documents that have those dates on them in case anyone ever disputes that later on. And then do it for each category mm -hmm. of expansion later. So if you launch a new product, right, maintain those records also. Mm. You know, and give some thought about who you're working with, your products and the information that's important to your business. And delving down on those issues will help you put together those written agreements that you need to have in place. You don't need to, you know, if you, if you don't have information, you don't need the agreement, but it, but likely that there's 
protectable and valuable information that you're going to be putting together and coming up with that you want to protect and keep from others. Clarify the IP ownership in your contract. Uh, make sure that you get it written down so you don't have to go back for it later on once you, once you speak with an attorney. And, you know, then the next step would be make sure that there's licenses in place to protect your brand and your quality with those that you're working with. Absolutely. All those are super important. Thank you so much, Patricia, for joining me on this episode of Legally Empowered. You have such a wealth of intellectual property experience and knowledge, and I know I'll be calling you for, for different client information, but I also know that our startups and entrepreneurs will be listening and taking your advice. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. 